2023 IPOs have failed to inspire a public market resurgence many hoped they would. The UN creates an AI advisory body of members representing countries from around the globe. And Google paid $26 billion to be the default search engine on your iPhone. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Only one month ago, the resurgence of the U.S. IPO market looked promising. The hope many felt about a public market comeback has vanished as the four big fall listings go 0 for 4. Clavio, the marketing automation platform and only company of the group that showed significant early growth in the public market, has now joined Arm, Instacart, and Birkenstock, falling below its initial list price. Clavio's stock dropped to its lowest ever price around market close on Friday. The signal is clear. The public market is not very startup friendly right now. Companies seeking an IPO are reconsidering entering the market anytime soon. According to Bloomberg sources familiar with the matter, Bright Spring Health Services, who is planning to raise $1 billion in an initial public offering, is now considering a delay. Cully Davis, head of West Coast TMT Investment Banking at Jefferies, shared that, quote, The fourth quarter for IPOs will in all likelihood be slow. He goes on, quote, After periods of muted activity, you generally need one or two deals to trade well to inspire confidence and draw investors and issuers back. Unquote. It doesn't appear that one or two deals needed to inspire confidence are close either. Global tensions in Israel and Ukraine and with China and rising inflation and interest rates don't make for a welcoming IPO environment. For more on when public markets can make their long-awaited comeback, I spoke with Isabel Friedheim. Hi, this is Isabel Friedheim. I am the founder and chair of Athena. Athena Technologies, an all-women-led SPAC platform. Isabel, the global economy is dealing with the war in Israel, tensions with China, falling bond prices, and rising inflation and interest rates. How will these strains on the global economy affect the IPO market? They absolutely do. The opportunity right now for IPOs is very much closed. The market remains shut, and we saw that with uh, the few IPOs that tried to go or did go in, in the fall, but the the window opening is going to be predicated on the comfort and clarity around some of the core issues that you just referred to, and that's war in Israel, war in Ukraine, a continued fears of recession, right, even though the economy is currently doing well, uh, uncertainty around inflation, continued um rates, uh, knowing where the Fed is is heading on rates is still unclear at this point. And so I think because of of that, investors are not receptive and companies are not really in a rush to be the the next IPO um, in the market. With Arm, Instacart, and Clavio all falling below their initial list prices, would you consider these IPOs not a success? Do you think their listings close the IPO window that was briefly open in September? I don't think that's not a success, but it's but it's not it's not a failure. It's not a success. I think uh, you know there's demand for IPOs on the company side, so there's demand for companies accessing the public equity markets. Um, in fact, we saw 30 or so IPO filings in the last month, which is a lot. So there's demand, and there are companies that have been waiting for a long time to go out and 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 get into the market but unfortunately i think they're going to have to continue to wait because the bigger ones are likely going to go first right and we saw that with instagram and instacart and clavio and so on um but but that's going to continue whenever the market does recover which we're not there yet and you know it could be soon i think there are predictions that it'll be q1 q2 q2 next year but 
but it could take longer. I mean, there have been down cycles in the past that have lasted four or five years, right? And we're, what, a couple of years in. So it's not impossible that it does take longer, especially if there isn't a resolution on the geopolitical front. And um, and so I think investors are, are cautious now. And uh, but, but that said, again, a lot of demand. And I think if you look at 2020, 2021, we went from well north of 400 IPOs that raised you know, almost 200 billion of capital versus a small fraction of that today. And, you know, yet there are companies that continue to, to grow and that need the capital and the need to access the public market. So, so the bottom line is the big ones are going to go first whenever the market does recover. The smaller ones are going to have a harder time, which is, of course, the, the vast majority of them. Um, some that have already filed for IPOs are going to keep waiting in line. And the bigger ones go because that's where the fees are for the bankers, and that's where there's maybe a little more certainty, and at least in the scale, certainty of, of success or more better likelihood of success. So, 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 so that's where I think we're we're heading now. And you know, there was a lot of hope that after Labor Day in the U.S., um, I, I, the IPO market would recover, but but clearly we're not there yet. Last question, Isabel. In the last month, thirty companies have filed for an IPO with the SEC, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. With the potential government shutdown in November here in the U.S., do you think companies are filing now to act fast on listings? How would a government shutdown affect the IPO market? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that it blocks the market and it, it slows the market down and eventually there will be resolution. But I don't think those companies are necessarily waiting for that three-day window, right? I mean, they filed and uh, I think there, many of them are aware that it can take many more months for the IPO volume to come back, right? Um, and if, in fact, if you look at... Um, the, the IPO volume that we're talking about, I mean, there's the U.S., but then there's uh, the rest of the world as well. And the slowdown is, is really global. So I think it's somewhat narrow-minded to just focus on that particular event happening in the U.S. for a short period of time that will likely see resolution eventually, right? The government isn't going to stay shut down forever. So <laughs> so I, I think there's much more to it than, than just that. That's uh that, that's a short window of time, and I don't think that those 30 companies are necessarily playing around that particular window. That was Isabel Friedheim, founder and chair of Athena Technology. Thanks a lot, Isabel. Always a pleasure having you on. Thank you. The UN just asked the world to come together to discuss AI governance. Last Thursday, Antonio Gutierrez, the United Nations Secretary General, announced the creation of a 39-member advisory body to address proper AI regulatory conduct. Among the members of the body are tech executives including Sony CTO Hiroaki Katano, OpenAI CTO Mir Marathi, and Microsoft's Chief Responsible AI Officer Natasha Crampton. Members also include government officials and academics. The United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China are some of the prominent member countries who plan to participate. When discussing the group, Gutierrez stated, quote, The transformative potential of AI for good is difficult even to grasp. He continues, quote, And without entering into a host of doomsday scenarios, it is already clear that the malicious use of AI could undermine trust in institutions, weaken social cohesion, and threaten democracy itself. Details of how the advisory body will function and what exactly it plans to accomplish is mostly unknown, but it seems that its immediate goal is to build a global scientific consensus on the risks and challenges of AI. 39 members will, quote, offer diverse perspectives and options on how AI can be governed for the common good. For more on what we can expect from the UN's artificial intelligence advisory body, I spoke with Rudina Ciceri. 
Rudina Cesari, founder and managing partner, Glasswing Ventures. Rudina leads Glasswing Ventures investments in AI. Rudina, according to the UN, the advisory body's immediate goal is to build a global scientific consensus on the risks and challenges of AI. The body will also strive to strengthen global cooperation on AI governance. Is this international collaboration encouraging to you that global leaders are taking artificial intelligence seriously? Yes, thank you. And thank you for asking this question because it's a very relevant topic in in the wave of adoption around AI and the momentum that we have around its innovation. So I think I, I will start with the premise that AI must be regulated. It's a very powerful technology. It's not inherently good or bad, but guardrails have to be put um, in place. So any international, national, or any effort at, at any level that brings um, more clarity and guidelines by way of regulation is valuable. Now, the keys to the key to successful regulation, I think, um, I think with the key to successful regulation, whether we're thinking about the adoption of AI in enterprise and startups and in common companies, it's going to be clarity around that regulation, clarity that allows companies to build confidently um, their products and know that we are within the rules. It also, you know, the cost of adhering and the effort to adhering to it cannot be an obstacle, especially for startups, because it would automatically, therefore, favor few incumbents. The effectiveness and likelihood of success at an international level, it's a bigger question, um, because not only does one have to account for the needs of specific countries, but also the broader geopolitical agendas of each of those countries and how we all come together. But at a fundamental level, international and regulation around AI, any kind of regulation around AI, especially if it's well-defined and not too overtaxing, is an important step forward. Do you think international AI governance is actually on the table? We have very few examples of laws that every global country actually agrees to collectively follow, but is there a future where certain AI guardrails do become international law? Potentially, to be perfectly frank, I do not see the adoption or the the rise of regulation around AI start at the international level. I believe it will be more likely and more enforceable if it starts at a national level. But then could there down the road, and I can't handicap as to what down the road truly means, but could there be a convergence around international regulations and therefore constituting international law? law potentially but if we're looking for effectiveness and you know for adherence i believe that at the national level as we're seeing and also you know as we're sorry at least at a federation level much like we're seeing around the eu and particular states in, in the u.s will probably be the early adoption and the early uh, path that enterprises and businesses will follow Last question, Rudina. A representative for China, Professor Yi Zhang, will be part of the UN's advisory body. Do you think China would ever actually commit to cooperating with any principles established by the 39 members of the committee? 
Honestly, it's hard to speak on behalf of China, but if you think about the dynamics and then the ecosystem, one of the facets that is quite perplexing um, that takes place in China is that there is no notion of privacy of data, that the government pretty much has free access to all data. So if here, if true regulation accounted for data and data privacy and security, and China has an advantage in that arena by virtue of not abiding or not finding the need to um, comply, I do not know how they would be able to adhere to the regulations. The only way I could therefore see them adhering to the international regulations is if, they do, if the regulations were watered down so very much that they made no mention or effort to protect data and data privacy, in which case then potentially we could see China adhering. But in the absence of that, um, anything that accounts for data and protecting individuals and their data would go counter to the competitive and comparative advantage that China has by not complying. That was Rodina Cesari, founder and managing partner at Glasswing Ventures. So great to speak with you, Rodina. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much again for having me. It's just been revealed that in 2021, Google paid over $26 billion to be the default search engine on smartphones and internet browsers. On Friday, a judge in Google's antitrust lawsuit forced a Google executive to disclose how much the company paid to be the default search engine on devices. That includes Apple, LG, Motorola, and Samsung smartphones, as well as carriers like AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon, who all held partnerships with Google. And finally, browsers such as Mozilla, Opera, and UC Web. Google argued that the $26.3 billion amount was highly sensitive information that should not be announced in the antitrust case. The Department of Justice disagreed, maintaining that the number is clear evidence of Google acting in anti-competitive fashion by unfairly outbidding competition. Google doesn't think this justification holds merit, contending that even if the company didn't pay for search priority, people would still prefer Google's search engine over any on the market. According to Prabhakar Raghavan, head of search and advertising at Google, the company's cost to retain being the default search engine has tripled since 2014. Although it pays a hefty price for the default spot, it's worth it as Google generated $146.4 billion in search and advertising revenue last year. The antitrust case against the tech giant began last month and is not expected to end until sometime in early 2024. Tune into the trial this week as Google's CEO Sundar Pichai is likely to testify, making his first appearance so far. As news continues to develop around the biggest tech antitrust case since the 90s, we'll be sure to keep you updated here at Venture Daily. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.